0: All right, so my subject might seem somewhat obscure, um, but Jesus thought it was important. In John 8 14, Jesus, in answering the Pharisees, said this Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from, or where I am going. So this is a criticism of the Pharisees. They don't know where Jesus came from or where he is going. And we want to make sure that we do. And along with that is the purpose for him coming and going. And then over a few chapters in John 16, when Jesus is talking with the disciples Knowing this is a key element demonstrating the belief of the disciples, demonstrating their belief. In John 16, verse 27, Jesus said, "...for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again." and going to the Father. And then um, look at verse 30. Now the disciples answer and they say, Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? This is an element of belief for uh, the disciples, and therefore it's a scolding for the Pharisees who don't believe. So, Let's uh, talk about the purposes of Jesus' first coming, his incarnation. Now, I'm going to give you exactly five seconds to leave the room when I tell you that while you think of one or maybe two purposes for the first coming, we have 16. Now, before you get up and leave, I'm still going to end in time because we're just going to touch on things. So, um, let's begin In John, where we are, John chapter 1, and we will look at the first purpose of the incarnation, and that is for Jesus, for God, Jesus to be and to picture God dwelling with men. For Jesus to picture God dwelling. Dwelling with men. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we're talking about Jesus here as we go down to verse 14. And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's important. It's not just because we want to know where he lived, it's because Je- Jesus, who is God, is dwelling with men. You understand, of course, that God dwelt with man in the beginning, right? God dwelt with Adam and Eve. He walked with them in the garden. He met with them. He dwelt with them. But sin separated God from man, separated man from dwelling with God. And right here, right off the bat, John is making it clear that in Jesus, God is showing that he will dwell with men again, that it's not all over with, with the fall, like Abner was talking about in the first service. It's going to be redone with a better Adam. And it is Jesus who pictures that and is, in fact, God dwelling with men. By the way, for those people, if you're... if you're witnessing to someone and um, people are trying to deal with it rationally, you're, you're trying to make a rational argument to get people to God, that's a good thing as a tool, but you have to remember that it's the Holy Spirit that does the work, because there are only three un, unfallen, people with unfallen reason in the history of the world. Three people had unfallen reason, and two of them reasoned their way away from God when they were already with him, Adam and Eve. Jesus, the only other person with unfallen reason, was also God. But the the other two were with God and reasoned their way away. So don't get frustrated if you're trying to reason someone to heaven. Do what you can and then pray to the Holy Spirit who does the work anyway. That's a side note. All right, number two. The second purpose for the incarnation is to be a perfect image of God, to be a perfect image, a picture, a representation of God. And we can stay right here in John 1 and go down four verses to verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now, he has explained him means he has shown us who he is because Jesus was God. Jesus is God, but in, in when he walked the earth, he was God. And so if you saw Jesus, you have seen God. So he's the perfect image of God. The writer of Hebrews expresses it very well in the opening of the book of Hebrews. In verse 3, speaking of Jesus, he says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And glory plays a key role, by the way, in who God is. And so that's why the writer of Hebrews emphasizes that. He is then the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, not an imperfect image of God. Man is, is an image of God. We are made in the image of God, but we are quite imperfect. But Jesus came to be a perfect image of God, to show the world who God is. A third purpose of his first coming is to demonstrate the grace and mercy of God. Again, we can stay in John 1 and go back to verse 14. Where John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Notice he's emphasizing the glory aspect again. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. God is full of grace. God is a God of grace. Jesus came to put that on display. And he did so in a number of ways, most prominently, in his healing ministry, uh, His healing ministry was a tremendous example of grace, of his unmerited favor. A fourth purpose of the first coming was to preach and proclaim the good news of the gospel. In Mark chapter one, and verse 38. The disciple, Jesus, goes out uh, into a, a place, a, it's called a lonely place by himself, and the, Simon and the companions hunt for him. Uh, and then, verse 37, when they found him, they said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Okay, let's go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, in order that I may preach there also, for that is what I came out for. He came to preach the gospel. the good good news. Fifth, he came to fulfill the law. In Matthew chapter 5, in verse 17, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, Often there's a lot of misunderstanding concerning this. Uh, the simple, there's a few simple ways of looking at it. Um, not only this verse. By the way, if you really want to understand this, just read the book of Hebrews. <laughs> if, I were to, if I were to start giving you verses, it would end up being, well, why didn't you just tell us to read the whole book? Because uh, that's what the book of Hebrews is about, how Jesus fulfills the law. And how does he do that? At least three ways. First of all, he fulfilled the moral law by keeping it by being the first person to keep it. So he fulfilled the moral law. Secondly, he fulfilled the ceremonial law that you find in the Old Testament by embodying everything that it pointed to. And that's what the book of Hebrews will tell you. The whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament of the ceremonial law was simply a picture of what Christ would do in the real sacrifice it was a copy it was a picture an image of what christ would ultimately do so he fulfilled the ceremonial law by embodying all that it pointed to and thirdly he fulfilled the judicial law by personifying god's perfect justice there are various elements of the law there's the moral law which is still we are still accountable to right And then there's the ceremonial law, which we're not any more accountable to. And there's judicial law, which we're not really accountable to either. It was connected to the Mosaic Commonwealth. But Jesus, nonetheless, um, personified God's perfect justice, that the justice system of the law was designed to copy again and to reflect. So he came to fulfill the law. Sixth. He came to be the firstborn, the rightful heir. This is a powerful concept, which is a message in of itself. <laughs> so I will restrain. Um, Romans chapter eight verse twenty nine. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he Jesus might be the firstborn. Among many brethren. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, again, verse 2: In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. These two concepts are related. When uh, here in the book of Colossians and elsewhere, when Jesus is referred to as the firstborn, in Colossians he's referred to as the firstborn of the dead. Um, Here he's referred, uh, in, in Romans, he's referred to the firstborn among many brethren. It's not talking about chronological time. He's not the first one to be born. He's not the first one to die. Firstborn is related to the concept of an heir, that we see in, in Hebrews 1. The heir, the firstborn, is the heir of all things. Uh, and so, in fact, in the Old Testament, uh, God illustrated that it's not necessarily the first one to be born because, by taking it away from some of the firstborns in some of the stories that you remember from your flannel graph days. Right? Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn chronologically, But he wasn't the firstborn in God's plan. He wasn't the rightful heir. And so there had to be something that made that change. And there are other examples of it as well in Scripture. So firstborn refers to the one who is preeminent, the one who is highest ranked, and the one who is the heir of all things. And Jesus is the firstborn of a number of groups. He's the firstborn among the brethren. He's the firstborn among. among the dead, and so on. He is the rightful heir of all things. And that ultimately comes to play in Revelation chapter 5 that Abner mentioned this morning, in which they're looking for the one who is worthy to inherit the scroll, the scroll of the earth. And there's only one who is the proper heir of the earth. Read Revelation 5. Read it anyway. It's cool. Seventh. A seventh purpose of his first coming is to model holiness. Now I put a lot of verses up here because I need so many verses on this, not because you do. Um, to model holiness. But for all of these verses, I'm gonna just let first John two six cover the ground. 1 John 2.6. First John says, I'm sorry, John says, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Some of that language might sound familiar if you were listening a year or so ago to Dr. MacArthur going through Ephesians and talking about walking in a manner worthy. Jesus came to model holiness, to show us what it means to walk worthy. And then we are to follow his example. And in these various verses that we're not mentioning, um, Jesus tells them, learn from me. Learn from me. And when he's talking about that, he's not just talking about learn facts. He's doing it in the context of how to live, learn from me, how to live. We have these passages, as I mentioned in uh, the epistles, walk as he walked, walk as he walked. But also, there are several passages that are very important in which Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And even as you go all the way to the book of Revelation and the letters to the churches, it talks about he who has overcome, and those who overcame, overcome will inherit blah, blah, blah. The concept of overcoming is overcoming sin. Jesus was righteous, not just innocent. We'll get there in a bit. He was righteous, not just innocent. Righteous, an innocent person hasn't done anything wrong. A righteous person has overcome sin. An innocent person hasn't yet been tempted. A righteous person has overcome temptation and have overcome the devil. And Jesus regularly says, I have overcome, and he's, and he's referred to as the one who overcomes, and we are referred to as the ones who overcome because we do so through him. We do so because of his work that is accounted to our accounts. But in this world, in this life, We should walk as he walked. He left us an example to follow. Oops. I pressed the wrong button and now it won't work. Sorry, Jason. Okay, now it's working. All right. Eighth. The eighth... Purpose for Jesus coming was to experience temptation. Um, again, Hebrews is uh, is so good on this, and all the way through. But in Hebrews chapter four, verses fifteen and sixteen, we see something about the purpose for him experiencing temptation. Hebrews 4, verses 15 to 16, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. We can draw near with confidence because he knows what we have gone through. He knows temptation. And by the way... When it says he has been tempted in all things such as we are, it doesn't mean that he was tempted to uh, exceed the speed limit, which unfortunately many of you succumb to. It doesn't mean every individual type of thing. It means the three categories of sin that are outlined in Scripture going back to the, the, the very garden when Eve first fell, and then later in the New Testament. Um, so there are three categories of sin, and he experienced all three of them. Also, his, when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, it was those three categories um, in that specific temptation by Satan. So he came to experience temptation, because to be the second Adam, he had to experience temptation and overcome it and defeat it. Ninth, to be the second Adam. To be the second Adam, to reject Satan's temptations as the first Adam failed to do. Um, Romans chapter 5 is a glorious passage for a number of reasons. Romans chapter 5, let's start in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, talking about Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense. And again, you didn't, they didn't sin exactly the same as Adam did, but it's, again, one of these categories, or more of them. Um, who, those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense who was a type of him who was to come, which is Jesus. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died... Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And let's skip to uh, verses 18 and 19. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men for as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous and again righteousness was ne- is necessary to overcome to obey and not to fall and succumb to temptation so jesus came to be that second adam so that god could restore his people, a relationship with his people. Tenth, he came to live a sinless, righteous life. And again, we just saw that in these verses, but I want to look also again back in the book of Hebrews, back in chapter 4, verse 15, we saw this before. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And go to Hebrews 7, and we'll see an effect of that. Hebrews 7, verses 26 and 27. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, Separated from sinners and exalted above the head in heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So we don't have to have the old sacrificial system with the priests coming in and making sacrifices for the people after making sacrifices for themselves so that they would be blameless when they made the sacrifices for the people because Jesus took care of that once and for all on the cross, on our behalf. And again, righteousness requires overcoming. 11. He came to take away sins and destroy the works of the devil. Now this is probably one that we automatically think of with the first coming, and rightly so. Um, but look at First uh, John, again, chapter 2, verse 2. He himself is the propitiation, the satisfaction, that is, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And then verse, chapter 3, verse 5 of 1 John. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. He came to take away sins. Verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil is sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. He came to take away sins and to destroy the works of the devil. And then, going back to Hebrews, Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time, not to bear sin to those who eagerly await him for salvation. But the first time he came to bear the sins of many, to take away sins. And by the way, um, you might recall how he was introduced by the guy who was sent to introduce him. Who was sent to introduce him? Jesus said the greatest man who ever lived, because and what made him great was not because he conquered half the world, but because he introduced Jesus, the Messiah, in John chapter 1, how did he introduce Jesus? Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice he says he took away the sin of the world, not just the sins of the world, because he destroyed the works of the devil. He takes away the whole concept of sin not just individual sins. Number 12, he came to die. Here we can begin in the Old Testament. For those of you who are visiting, sojourners is an Old Testament class, but not today. <laughs> we, we take little day trips out of the Old Testament, and this is one of those. But um, in Isaiah 53, the famous chapter about the suffering servant Christ, the Messiah, verse 8: By oppression and judgment he was taken away, as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. He came to be cut off from the land of the living, to die. Jesus, in Mark 10, Verse 45, when the disciples, by the way, were arguing over who was the greatest among them, great context for this verse. Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus wasn't a victim. Jesus gave his life. He came to do that. He came to give his life in place of others, not just as a gesture. 13. Jesus came to create conflict and division in personal relationships. Whoa, wait a minute. You lost me, man. I'm jumping, off the tr- I'm jumping off the wagon at this point. All right, let me, let me change it a little bit. In this case, the purpose is an effect. It's a result. He didn't actually come to do this, although he sort of said that. He didn't actually come to do this, but what he came to do, the effect of it, creates this. So let's see if we can deal with this a little bit. Go to Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 34 to 37. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Hmm. Interesting. But then verse 37 hopefully clears it up. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What he's talking about here is that some people in families will become believers and will follow Christ and some won't, and it will cause division. It will cause separation in the family when they choose Christ over their family members. He came for the purpose of them choosing him. The effect of that is division. The effect of that is conflict and personal relationships. Uh, I think Luke 12 is helpful. Verse 51. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For From now on, five members in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law because of him and some family members choosing to follow him and others not. So it's a purpose for coming, but it's really more of an effect of his coming. Fourteen, he came for judgment. Really? Doesn't Jesus say in John... Chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. So, like, what are you talking about? All right. You have to read then verses 18 and 19. It's important to read verses in context. John chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Well, let's do 17 again. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. He came for judgment, but not to judge yet. But he came to show the difference between those who loved the darkness and are are bound to reject him and those who accept him. They are judged already. He's going to come as a judge. That would be one of the purposes of the second coming. A little preview of coming attractions. Um, but nonetheless, even in his first coming, he comes to judge in the sense that he condemns the self-righteous, the ones who decide they're okay on their own, the Pharisaical ones, who we still see walking around today, although they they don't dress up funny, but they think they're okay. I'm a pretty good guy. I, I'm a pretty good guy. I don't lie very often. I cheat on my taxes, but you know that's okay. Um, So there's a sense in which he came uh, for judgment in his first coming. And he also says in John 9 39, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. What does he mean? Those who see may become blind. It's those who think they see. There's there's going to be a stark division. You'll have no more excuse because Jesus comes and brings the light. And so, if you are self righteous and you think you see, you're going to be demonstrated to be blind. 15, to provide abundant life to his sheep. We were just in John 9, jump over to John 10. John 10, 10, in the passage in which Jesus talks about being not only the sheep, but the shepherd and the door, he says in verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. What does that mean? It means multiple things. It means, first of all, eternal life, which is the way we usually think about it, which, again, as I've explained before, is really sempiternal life, but that's another issue. Um, he came for eternal to give us eternal life, life without end, But think about this for a second. Would you want life without end if all you could have in that eternal life was bad? You can have all the food you want to eat, but it all tastes horrible. And it all makes you sick. And you can have as many uh, good-looking people around you as you want and they're all jerks and idiots, and they all hate you. Um, you can uh, engage in some type of project, and it will always fail. Uh, just pick the category. You have life forever, but everything is bad. Um, Plato, actually. I don't often bring Plato into my messages. I could, but Plato said... Do you suppose it's of any advantage to possess everything except what's good? No, that's not an advantage. Jesus talks about it when he says, right, who would gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So it's not just eternal life. It's the best quality of life. It's not just avoidance of death. But abundant life is the best quality of life. And quality is much more important than quantity. Quality is much more important than quantity. There are a lot of people who are going to live forever in hell. And they will wish it could end. If life is bad, painful, isolated, that's not good. But Jesus offers not just eternal life, but the best quality of life, abundant life. And then uh, finally, as 16 is the one most of you would put as number one, and I would too, but it was more fun to put it last. He came to save sinners, to be the Savior. We we saw how John the Baptist, who was sent by God to introduce Jesus, introduced him. But there was someone else who was sent by God to introduce Jesus. And that is an angel who was sent to Mary in Matthew one twenty one. And here's how he introduced him. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for it is he who will save his people from their sins so before he's even born we learn that this is a purpose for his coming and then of course John 3:16 I'm I'm skipping John 3:16 it's just too easy so go to verse 17, John 3, 17. For God, we read this earlier. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. In John 12, in verse 47, Jesus said, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And then Paul, in 1 Timothy, sums it up very well. It's a good summation of the New Testament, if you will. John, or excuse me, 1 Timothy, I'm so used to John now. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then what does Paul say? Among whom I am foremost of all. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. All right, so that's why Jesus came the first time. We've only got seven in the other part, so you can take a deep breath. You're okay. The second coming, when Jesus comes again, and, and I, by the way, I thanked Abner a couple of weeks ago for doing the rapture, because I was figured, trying to figure out what I was going to do with that, because he doesn't actually come to earth. He comes partway, and... and now I don't have to mess with it because he did it. So, <laughs> second coming, when Jesus comes again to earth. I'm going to suggest that there are seven purposes for this. First of all is to defeat the Antichrist. And I have to thank Abner again because he just talked about that this morning. Defeat the Antichrist and Satan and his followers. Uh, in his, what may be my favorite chapter in the Bible, Revelation 19... what may be my favorite verse in the Bible, Revelation 19.11, shortly after that in 17 and 18. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried out with a loud voice. Oh, wait, I don't want that. I want verses 20 and 21. I want 11. 19.11, I saw heaven open and behold... A white horse, he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True and Righteousness. He judges and wages war. He wages war on who? Verses 20 and 21. And the beast, that's the Antichrist, was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came in from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. He came to defeat the Antichrist and Satan and their followers. In between, verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with with it he may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So this is one purpose of the second coming, one of the ultimate purposes. Uh, He ultimately comes and right away destroys the Antichrist and his followers. And by the way, when people talk about the war of Armageddon, there actually is no war of Armageddon or battle of Armageddon. It's Jesus zaps them and they're dead. (laughs) It's not a battle. It's not a a contest. No one's going to keep score. There aren't going to be any deaths on one side. It's just Jesus comes with the sword from his mouth and kills them. Um, and may just parenthetically mention, by the way, because I I, I got asked this question a lot during COVID. Um, what if the vaccination gives me the mark of the beast? All right. No one will get the mark of the beast by accident. Bottom line, no one will get the mark of the beast by accident. Don't worry about a tattoo or a vaccination or anything else unless you know that you are selling your soul to Satan. (laughs) All right, let's move on. Number two, the second coming. Number two purpose to judge unbelievers. To judge unbelievers. Jesus, again, as he said, didn't come to judge the first time, although some people in his coming were judged automatically. But he didn't come to bring judgment, to execute judgment the first time. But in Matthew uh, chapter 16, and verse 27, he says this, For the Son of Man is going to come, in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. And in, the, in Acts chapter ten and verse forty-two. He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one, Jesus, who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Acts 17, verse 31. Paul on Mars Hill says at the end of his sermon there, because he, is, he God, has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He will judge the world in righteousness through the one that he has appointed, proving it by raising him from the dead, that is Jesus. Here's where... Okay. I'll take the chance of offending people. Here's where the portraits that people have on the walls in their house of Jesus with the sheep and the long-haired flowing close-up and whatnot, um, these things don't help. Jesus is not the meek, milk-toast, mild uh, pushover guy who loves everybody and just wants to do like whatever. Just take, be who you are, man. Come to Jesus as you are. And Jesus will be okay with that. Jesus will come as judge. And we just saw in Revelation 19 what happens to the followers of the Antichrist and Satan. They they go to the lake of fire. Jesus comes as judge the second time. The first time he didn't. But the second time he does. And there could be no mistaking that. Third, he comes to establish and rule over the millennial kingdom. In Revelation 20, in Revelation 20, after he uh, sends the beast and the false prophet and their followers to the lake of fire. Verse 20, or chapter 20 begins. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, Satan, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones. And they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That seems, by the way, pretty straightforward to me. But anyway, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So he comes to set up and rule over the millennial kingdom along with his saints who will be on thrones. Like, who will he reign over then if they're like all else? Well, there'll still be people. That come into it who are believers and they will have children and that's why after the thousand years there's another rebellion because they have children who are human beings who therefore sin and become rebellious um, fourth his second coming he comes to redeem israel He comes to redeem Israel. We don't often think about that. We don't think about it near enough. In Isaiah chapter 59, in verse 20, in verse 16, by the way, Isaiah talks about uh, God Himself bringing salvation. And then in verse 20, and a Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you, my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring from now and forever. So there's a promised redeemer who is coming to Israel, not to the church. Zechariah, some of you may be familiar with that book. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. That's because Israel will see Christ ultimately and be saved. Romans 11, Paul talks about this. Romans 11, starting in verse 25, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And then Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, as John is receiving this revelation from Christ, The revelation in the very beginning in in chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, we have this uh, quote from uh, Zechariah, by the way. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So he comes to redeem Israel. Not some substitute for Israel. Israel. Fifth, he comes to destroy death. He comes to destroy death. Revelation chapter fourteen, or chapter twenty, verse fourteen. I mentioned to you that after the millennial kingdom of a thousand years there'll be a whole new population of sinners who will rebel with Satan leading them, and Christ will deal with Satan then, toss him in the lake of fire, but not just Satan, but look at chapter 20, verse 14. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. He will destroy death because there'll be no more death. Everybody will live forever, one way or another, either in heaven or in hell. There's no more death. Sixth, he will come to complete salvation. Uh Uh-oh. Are you suggesting that what he did the first time didn't... All right, so there's different stages of salvation. Okay? Look with me at Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Some people have have ended up with... um, heresies. I'm taking this verse out of context. Work out your own salvation. That means to work it out to fulfillment, to fullness, to completion. It's talking about sanctification because there's initial salvation provided by Christ. There's salvation that the Holy Spirit brings when, when an individual person is converted. There is the process of salvation That is sanctification, and then there's the ultimate salvation, which is glorification. So this one is talking about sanctification. We look at Hebrews 9, verse 28. Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's part of salvation, shall appear a second time not to bear sin to those who eagerly await him for salvation. Wait a minute, so... He's saying here there's salvation that doesn't come until then. Yeah, it's the ultimate salvation that our salvation here points to. The ultimate salvation, which is glorification. 1 Peter 1, verse 5, starting verse 4, "...to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven." An inheritance reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the ultimate end salvation, glorification. Colossians makes it clearer. Colossians chapter 3 Verses three and four. When uh, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's this aspect of salvation when we are finally revealed with him in glory. You ever thought about this? Our life is hidden with Christ. Our real life, who we really are as believers in Christ, sanctified, justified by him, the way God looks at us through Christ. We are hidden in Christ. Our life is hidden in Christ because God looks through him at us. But we will be revealed in glory with him in the end when he is revealed. Think about it. It'll make your day. So... Philippians 2.12 is talking about bringing our salvation to fullness or completion. Hebrews 9.28 is talking about salvation then being consummated. It's the completion of our salvation. It's our internal inheritance which is set for you in heaven. Our eternal life and our resurrection bodies, the ultimate end of salvation. Jesus will come to bring salvation that to pass. He will come in glory and then we will come in glory with him. And then number seven. He comes to restore God's relationship with man and dwell with man. Ezekiel 37 prophet tells us in ezekiel 37 27 god says through the prophet my dwelling place also will be with them this is by the way in a messianic passage which he says in verse 24 my servant david will be king over them that's the messiah jesus so that's what he's talking about that's the context then my dwelling place also will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Ezekiel 48, verse 35, just happens to be the last sentence in Ezekiel. Because where do you go from here? The city shall be 18,000 cubits round about, and the name of that city from that day shall be The Lord is There. It's talking about the New Jerusalem. The Lord is There. That's what distinguishes it. That's its name, because that's what matters. Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, the dwelling place, tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is among men. He shall dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be among them. Verses 22 and 23, and I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of the sun or the moon or to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And then chapter 22, verse 3. There shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of his Lamb shall be in it, and the bondservants shall serve him. So guess what, people? We come full circle. Purpose number one in my list of Jesus' first coming was to picture what happens at the end. God restoring, living with men, dwelling with men. Jesus came and dwelt among us to picture what will ultimately happen in the second coming, which God will dwell with men once again and forever. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these glorious truths. Thank you, Father, that you gave us your word and that you give us minds that are capable of understanding these things so that we can glorify you and praise you. We praise your Son. We exalt him. And, Father, we uh, ask that you would help us to learn from him, to walk as he walked, and to glorify him, In all that we do and say, amen.